Let's begin with a word of prayer. My prayer this morning, Father, is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from Mark's Gospel, the ninth chapter, beginning with the second verse. It is our custom at Kings to stand for the reading of scripture. If you are able, please stand and read with me. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to skip the children's sermon today because the majority of the children's sermon revolves around pictures on the PowerPoint, which we won't see today as church is canceled due to the ice storms. So as I was preparing for this sermon, there were many different routes that the commentators and went. Some talked about Jesus and the transfiguration and, and our hope in the future that we will have transfigured bodies and, and celebrate and worship and praise in heaven forever. Some commentators talked about Peter and his willingness to stay on the top of the mountain and the necessity of him going down the mountain to do ministry. Some commentators talked about the importance of God saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Because in this day and age of noise, world noise and television noise and internet noise and tweet noise, we need to separate out the word of God and listen. None of those really resonated with my heart as I, I prepared my sermon. But you know what really spoke to me was the fact that they were on a mountain. Now, anybody who knows Vicky knows that Vicky likes to climb mountains. And anybody who knows me knows that I don't like to climb mountains. In fact, before I met Vicky, I'd only ever been up one mountain, and uh, I had driven to the top in a car. Vicky's in my first big vacation together. We went down to North Carolina, and she had a book of hikes. And the first one said it was a beginning hike. It was not a beginning hike for me. And I huffed and puffed, and we went up to see this beautiful waterfall. And then we huffed and puffed back down. Then she found another one, and she said, this is only a mile long. Let's do this one. It was a mile long, straight up. They literally had benches every hundred feet, and you would walk 
up this steep, steep incline and then plop on the bench, catch your breath, and then walk up another hundred feet to the next. It was a glorious view at the top. But it became a sticking point for me that when we go on vacation, we climb mountains. And we've climbed several others. We climbed the Beehive in Maine and the Bubbles in Maine. And we did drive up Cadillac Mountain in Maine. But I am not a big fan of climbing mountains. But you know what? Mountains are all over literature and uh, popular culture. In fact, more than once you'll hear somebody say, well, if the mountain won't come to Muhammad, then Muhammad has to go to the mountains. We know that mountains are immovable. Now, this quote is often attributed to Sir Edmund Hillary, but he's not the one who said it. George Mallory, who was also part of that first expedition to the top of Everest, was asked by the New York Times why he wanted to climb Mount Everest. And you know what he said? He said, because it's there. Mountains present for us a challenge, an obstacle to be overcome. Now, we just finished Bear Day in my elementary classes. And you may say, well, Dr. Madison, what is Bear Day? Well, we did the old, the bear went over the mountain, the bear went over the mountain, the bear went over the mountain to see what he could see, to see what he could see, to see what he could see. Then you take a big breath and sing, the other side of the mountain, the other side of the mountain, the other side of the mountain is all that he could see. And we read a book about terrific bear, about a little bear who is so self-conceited that he gives himself stickers when he does a good job. And then we finish up with two activities. One is a bear hunt. You remember this from your childhood? You pat your legs, you clap your hands, and you snap, and you chant, we're going on a bear hunt. Gonna catch a big one. And you go through a, a wheat field and over a bridge and up a tree, and then you find the bear, and then you run all the way home. Well, why, why does this fascinate little children? Because bears climb mountains. We want to climb mountains, and they love doing the motions of climbing the mountains with the bears. Now, speaking of mountains, the psychologist, Jean Piaget, discovered that children who are under the age of seven have an inability to see a mountain from your perspective. What does this mean? He made a little 3D model of a mountain, and on one side, let's say he put an eagle and a cow and a little pond. And on the other side of the mountain, he put a goat, a shepherd, and a stream. And the child is on one side of the mountain, and the grown-up, the tester, is on the other. And he would say to the child, what do you see? And if the child was on the side with the eagle and the cow in the pond, that's exactly what the child would say. I see an eagle and a cow and a pond. Then the test administrator would say, what do I see on my side? And the child would emphatically say, you see the eagle, the cow, and the pond. 
because they only have the ability to see it from their perspective. So then the test administrator would spin the mountain and now the child could see the goat, the shepherd, and the stream. Ask the child what they see. Oh, I see a goat, a shepherd, and a stream. Now remember, the child knows that the other side of the mountain has an eagle and a cow and a pond. But when the test administrator asks, what do I see? The child responds, you see the goat, the shepherd, and the stream. It's called egocentrism. It's the inability to see things from somebody else's perspective. We need to climb the mountains in our life, sometimes just to get a new perspective. Now, this story for me is unique in the Gospels because it's not a parable. It's not a teaching. It's not a healing or a multiplying miracle. And it's not a public declaration. In fact, it's just Jesus and three of his disciples. Another unique part of this story is that it's really two stories in one. One is a story of Jesus, who is transfigured and knows what's coming in the future, knows what heaven is like. He needs reinsurance and strength for this difficult journey on which he's embarked to the cross. And he knows Moses as the father of Judaism as a religion, and Elijah, who shared great faith or showed great faith in unimaginable adversity. Jesus resonates at this point in his life with these two pillars of the Jewish faith. Now let's look at the disciples' side of the story. Jesus has already told them in chapter 8 that he is going to be persecuted and crucified and come back from the dead, and the disciples refuse to believe. They deny what's coming. The disciples have no clue what heaven is like. The disciples at this moment in time need to see the real Jesus. What does that mean? The real Jesus that stepped down from his heavenly throne Not the man, but the God-man. And the disciples need to see Jesus from God's perspective. They need, in essence, to turn that mountain around to the other side. They've only been able to see Jesus from their own perspective, and now they need to see Jesus from God's perspective. So for me, there are four lessons The first one is this. Jesus went with his disciples up the mountain. The second is this. In solitude and separated, in solitude separated from the world, God's voice was heard. In fact, there's only two times in the Gospels when God audibly speaks on behalf of his son Jesus. One is at the baptism when he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this time when he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The third is this, ministry requires that we leave the top of the mountain. And the fourth is this, we must proclaim the risen Christ. So let's look at these individually. The first one is this. Jesus went up the mountain 
with the disciples. You do not need to climb the mountain alone. Now, I remember when I was a young man watching late night TV, do you remember they used to do the compilation albums? And one of the compilation albums was the great gospel singers of our day. And one of the songs that they sang really stuck with me. It was called The Rough Side of the Mountain by uh, Reverend F.C. Barnes. I want you to hear what F.C. Barnes wrote about going up the mountain with Jesus. Oh, Lord, I'm striving, trying to make it through this barren land. But as I go from day to day, I can hear my Savior say, Trust me, child. Come on and hold my hand. I'm coming up on the rough side of the mountain. I must hold to God his powerful hand. I'm coming up on the rough side of the mountain. I'm doing my best to make it in. I'm coming up, Lord. I'm coming up, Lord. Although my burdens, sometimes they press me down. But if I can only keep this faith, I'll have strength just to run this race. I'm looking for my starry crown. I'm coming up on the rough side of the mountain. I must hold to God his powerful hand. I'm coming up on the rough side of the mountain. I'm doing my best to make it in. And then this verse. This old race will soon be over. There'll be no more race to run. And I will stand before God's throne. All my heartaches will be gone. I'll hear my Savior say, welcome home. I'm coming up on the rough side of the mountain. I must hold to God his powerful hand. I'm coming up on the rough side of the mountain. I'm doing my best to make it in. Jesus went up the mountain with them. Jesus goes up the mountain with us. You don't have to go alone. The second thing I think we can learn is this. We need to find solitude to hear God's voice. Ron Mel is a golfer, and he was playing a very difficult course that was new to him, and they gave him a caddy named Eddie. Eddie was an older gentleman and had been a caddy for perhaps decades on this golf course. Every time Eddie gave advice, it seemed to Ron to be way off. So Ron ignored Eddie's advice and went on with his his own knowledge, experience, and instincts. And consequently, his game was lousy. When it became obvious to Ed that his advice was being ignored, he confronted Ron. Ed made it clear that he had only one job, and that was to caddy this course day after day. Every inch of the fairways, rough, and greens was etched permanently on his brain. Ed told Ron, if you want to play this course well, you have to trust what I say. Well said, in the game of life, you and I need to listen to God and to trust what he says. Hear that again. If you want to play the course well, if you want to travel this journey called life well, God says we need to listen. And we can't listen unless we find the solitude and the altitude necessary to hear 
focus, digest the word of God. The third thing we can learn from this story is this. Ministry requires leaving the mountains. When I was a little boy, I loved going to Malaga Camp down in Malaga, New Jersey. And I had no idea of the history of this wonderful little hamlet. And when I went to seminary and I learned the history of camp meetings throughout the entire nation, I was impressed and embarrassed, I have to say, that these people found a mountaintop and then built houses there and some of them never left. The great preachers in the 1800s would go from place to place. They would put up a tent. People would come and camp for the the camp meeting, hence the term, very much like the uh, Jewish people with Moses. The tabernacle was in the center of the campsite and people would camp all around it by tribe and nation. And God would speak to them from the midst of them. Well, sometimes people got confused and decided that it was the ground that was holy and they built cottages and and buildings and dining halls and and the camp meeting became a town meeting, really. And some of our older towns are the result of camp meetings. But I want you to hear this. The highs of our spiritual walk prepare provision and provide strength, hope, and knowledge for the valleys or the lows. Ministry requires that we leave the mountain. The last thing I'd like to talk about is this. We have to share God's word and perspective. Remember in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, which was also given on a mountain, challenged the disciples and us to go, make more disciples, baptize and teach. And Jesus finished by saying, and lo, I am with you always. Now, Kara and I had talked about this and we were going to end our service differently today, not with a hymn, but with a time of meditation. So if you would, settle yourself wherever you are and let God's Spirit speak and challenge your heart in the quiet. In the quiet, meditate and listen to what God is saying to you. In the quiet, meditate on what has God said and what do you need to rehear. And finally, meditate on someone. Ask the Holy Spirit to lay one person on your heart this week that you can come off the mountain and tell them about the wonderful things God has done for you.
Amen.